five points that a pastor wants to do. Um, but I'm going to do it the way I would do it as an unbeliever. You guys are all theology, save and stuff, but um, I'm going to go with the five points. Um, my, my assignment is to give you the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, which is my Lord and my God. Um, before you even get to the good news, I just want to tell you how it all started, which is God himself. Um, there's three points to God. You know, there's God, there's no beginning with God. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He, he has no beginning, no end. There is no, um, there's no all about him. In other words, there's, there's, there's just no starting point with him. He's just there, okay? The second point is created everything. He created everything in the universe, everything in the world. Um, there's billions and billions of stars. He could name them all from the beginning to the end. Once when, which one, how many um, light years it has to, to the galaxy exploded, whatever. He created it all. And the third point that I want to make, and which to me is the most important point, that God is holy. There is no sin in God completely. He is a reverent, holy God, and he's also a merciful God. Merciful, patient, um, but he's also a judgmental God, and he will judge. So going back to creation, um, God created the world in six days, literally, 24-hour days. On the sixth day, he created the greatest thing of all, which is mankind. And he created man for a purpose. It's just to glorify him. So if you go into um, certain catechisms, um, and, and, the, and the point of man is why is man is this in the universe, why is man is here, is to glorify God, period. That's where God is here. So he created God. He created man. And um, this is not as easy as I thought it was. <laughs> so he created, he created man. And, and, the, and the sole purpose was to glorify him. But also he had a job for man. And he created all the animals. And man named them all. It was a job for him. However, none of these creatures that he created were suitable for man. Okay? So out of, out of, his, out of his side of his rib... He created a woman. Now, I'm paraphrasing everything quickly because I want to um, get to the, the parts that I really want to stress. So, out of that, he created a woman. So, it, it came out of man's flesh or man's bone. And like God says, let no man um, untie what I put up together, which is a woman and a man. So, in this process, he gave him domain of everything in the world. They commanded everything, went through everything. However, God created a creature that was the most crafty of all the creatures. And, uh, um, and he was a serpent. And he confused Eve with God's word, saying, you can eat of everything here in the garden. You could do everything here in the garden. However, there's just one thing you cannot do, and that he eat the tree of the, of the fruit of uh, the good and evil. So the crafty um, serpent twisted things around and said, you know, you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? None of them. And she said, no, only one. And then the serpent said, well, this is why. He said, you will not die because you will be like that God. So then because of that disobedience of her and then Adam also taking the fruit of that apple, sin into the world. Okay, now sin has to be a punishment for sin. Like I said before, God is holy. He's a judgmental God and he hates sin. He doesn't know, he, he does, sin does not even go into him. So he hated sin. So what he did was he punished him and got him out of the Garden of Eden. And then from there, sin into the world. And the sin just went rapid to the, to, to, to the extent that in Genesis 6, 6, and I'll read it real, real handily, he said, The Lord was, was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will not blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from whom to, to the animals and to the creeping things and to the birds and to the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a huge um, deal. He said he was sorry that he made them. To him, it was a great joy of making man, but then he hated making them. He hated it. So what did he do? He destroyed the world completely. Got me? He destroyed the world completely because of that once disobedient sin. He kept, he kept Noah, just one. Now, that seed, the world was populated again. Okay, so sin is, is, is the biggest culprit with God. And sin is basically rebellion against God completely. So then, you know, God had a plan. He said, well, there's no hope. The world has no hope. But then God had a plan. And the plan was this. 
which is send his son as a sacrifice, a human sacrifice, um, for, the, for the redemption of sins, taking the sacrifices on him. And, um, and who is this person? It's Christ, Jesus Christ. Because in John, John 1, 1 says, for, for in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay? Now, now in Philippians 2, 2.12, or should I say, uh, go here real quick. Philippians 2.5, so I say 2.6, it says here, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God to be, to be grasped, but he, he, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bomb servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of the Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in the heaven and those who are under the earth. So this is why. I mean, this is one of the greatest sacrifices that anybody could ever do. Even though he was God, he was sitting in the right hand of God, he did it because God told him to do it and asked him to do it. And he humbled himself to the lowest thing that it is, which is man, which is a sinful man. But this man was, was totally um, sinless. That's the only way he could do it. Okay? But this is a situation where um, what it comes down and says, well, why did Christ do this? And why did God let him do this? Well, in John 3.16, it says it very clear. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So then what's the result? Okay, well, how can I get this life? If I'm going to perish and I'm going to be in debt to sin, then what am I going to do? Well, first you have to believe. You have to believe. That's what it says. If you believe in me, I'll, you will have everlasting life. So then what? I mean, Romans 10 is very clear. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart the person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So that's, that's how it is. That's what you have to do. And then repent, for, and repent. Repent from your sins. What is repentance? We had a big discussion not too long ago in my house about the same thing. Well, repentance just turn away. Turn away from what you were doing before. If you were a thief, stop stealing. If you're a prostitute, stop being in the streets. If you, you, if you were a drug dealer, stop dealing drugs. That's repentance, change of heart, change of attitude. If you really sincerely accept Christ as your Lord and Savior and you confess it with sincere hearts, then you will turn away from sin completely. Does it mean that you still have sin? Of course you will. We're all sin-bearing. We're all going to have sin. But if you really, really in your heart are regenerated, and you really, really believe that Christ died for your heart, and you're mourning kind of sin, you will turn away from sin. And just want to end this real quick, and it says, you know, I say this to anybody, if you call, and it says it in uh, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, period. If you have a sincere heart, you will be saved. And in that note, I'll just um, close and pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for, um, you know, for your word. You know, it's so convicting, Lord, all the time. It pierces our hearts always. I just thank you for, um, for what you're doing in our hearts here, Lord, and the class that you've given us. Thank you for, um, for our teachers and the brothers that are here continuously. Um, it's, not a, it's a hard thing in a sense because you're getting up, but it's also a blessing because it's just, just to hear your word and to learn more about you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to praise you and to glorify you, Lord, in front of the brothers and also other people that just... Um, They've been backsliding maybe or, or just not walking right with the Lord, Lord. I just pray, Father, that this is an opportunity for them to take right with him and to repent and to go forward and keep on walking with you, Lord. I ask this, Father, for this day and thank you for blessing us always. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Right. Any questions for Ernesto? Yeah. But, I mean, we were unbelievers, so, you know. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? This is much harder. It's so much harder. When you stand up in front of you guys, it's like brutal. But, but Jeff, you're next. You, you want to go next?
hadn't done it. Brad, did you, you already did it, didn't you? You hadn't done it? I think, I think Brad, we'll let Brad do it first. Brad, you're next week. Or two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. And then you're the following week. You're the last one. Some of y'all haven't done it, though. Okay, if y'all keep it, look. Here, you're close. You're a little bit over, but it's all right. You're probably, it was probably about 12 minutes. It's hard to keep it in that. Listen, keeping it in five minutes is very difficult. I admit it. It's not easy. Hi. To try to get it in there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Take your Bibles. Let's start apologetics today. And and obviously we're not going to get all the way through this section because we only have like two more classes. I think. Is that about right? Maybe three. We have three classes. Three more classes. We only have three more classes, so we'll do our best. Uh, the last week, because I want everybody to at least get the opportunity to do a gospel presentation, whoever didn't do it has to do it. So you're last week, no matter what. Last week, no matter... You already did it. You haven't done it? I thought you were one of the first, but okay. Who you done it? Fernando hadn't done it either? Okay. Uh, by the way, uh, one, one little side note for you, um, and I know, Ernesto, it's because you speak Spanish most of the time. The word judgmental is, in, in English, means to put somebody down and put yourself above them. Uh, to judge them is a different concept than judgmental. To be judgmental is actually a sin. Judging them, English word, is okay. You can say he judges properly or he's a just judge, but you can't say he's a just judgmental judge because judgmental is the sinful word. I think most of the time it's 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 used for it's used it's used for a sinful concept. I know what you meant. I'm just giving you the English word. Judgmental is a word used for sin. You know what I mean? Like the Pharisees were judgmental. But God is not judgmental. God judges justly. Cool? No big deal, though. I mean, I understood what you meant. That's what you meant. All right. Let's go ahead and get started. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I really am sitting here thinking, man, I really want to do a gospel presentation for you guys in, in five minutes just to show you what it looks like. But... Uh, I, I think Mark should too. <laughs> He's like, no. It's so hard because you've got all this information you want to get across. Yeah, you want to get it all out there. Okay, this verse, somebody read First Peter 3.15. This verse is the verse for apologetics. All right, this is the verse used for apologetics. Every apologetics book you read will use this verse. However, very few, matter of fact, only this one, gives you the context of 1 Peter 3.15. I have never seen anybody in any apologetics book use that verse properly except for this guy. Every other apologetic book uses this wrong. Matter of fact, there's even a book, a presuppositional apologetic, which, uh, apologist, which is what we are or I am. You'll see as we go along. Uh, Bonson has a book, Always Ready. It's a quote from that verse, and yet he never explains the verse properly. This guy does a very good job, but I even think he slides away from the context of the verse a little bit. And I'll talk about that as we go into this class. I really want to deal with this verse 
okay? Because I think it will tell us what, uh, uh, first and foremost, what apologetics is, okay? Again, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Swice, or is it Swiss? Swiss or Swice? States in the introduction of our book, Peter 2 speaks about the need for apologetics in what is perhaps the most rehearsed passage in the New Testament on the subject. Always be prepared. So he quotes it, but then he launches onto his thing. Wayne House, Journal of Christian Apologetics, says, Our purpose is to help Christians to be able to give an answer to the hope that lies within us, but then doesn't explain it. My professor at TMS He's no longer there, but he said this. 1 Peter 3.15 stresses the following, and he gave five reasons. I'm only giving you a fifth one. All believers are to be ready at all times to confront everyone. (laughs) If that verse says that, please help me. That verse does not say that. It's not even close to that. Um, It doesn't say that. Right. Yes. Right. And we'll talk about it as we go along. There's an element of confrontation in apologetics. Okay. But let's call apologetics what it is. It's not necessarily First Peter three fifteen. Then. Then we're going to make a distinction. I, what I would say is the realm of apologetics involves confrontation. But 1 Peter 3.15 is a different type of apologetics. It's a right doctrine, wrong text. It's on the offense. And I agree that apologetics includes offensive, giving an offense. Defense, exactly. This verse is talking about defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get it. You get, you're getting it, guys. Here. Again, apologetics is this giant umbrella of explanations or defense. It's offensive and it's defensive. It confronts and it's defensive. Okay? But I will tell you this verse itself, if you're going to use it as the proof text for apologetics, there's an element of apologetics that's not ever explained very rarely that's this verse. And we'll talk about it as we go along. Let's look. Contend for the faith, that might be a little bit better for being confrontational. I think Galatians is a apologetic. The whole book. <laughs> the whole book of Galatians is a confrontation, too. And, and, and it's a defense. It's an apologetic. But we'll talk as we go along. Let's look at the verse, though. But sanctify Christ. What's the important word there? But... That means it's got a context, okay? What's the context? Well, let's walk down real quick. In, in you Look back in your Bible. From verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter begins to explain what the Christian walk should look like in verse 13. And verse 13 to 2.10, he's talking about the basic responsibilities of the child of God, that they're supposed to become holy. Second, they're supposed to love one another. Third, they're supposed to long for the word, chapter 2, verse 1. Fourth, they're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him, uh, of him who bought them, right? Then in verse 11, he begins to look at specific responsibilities of the child of God. He looks at different roles. And he's got the overarching idea of this, keep your responsibility, do your responsibility, do your role as a defense. We'll see it as we go along. As a testimony, look at verse 11. Somebody read that, 11 and 12. This is, I think, a key verse in the whole section. Yeah, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens to strangers to abstain from freshly lust, which wage war against the soul. One more verse. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, All right, so what do we see in this verse? Well, it's about what we do. It's how we act. That verse is a crucial thing. Live in light of persecution 
in a certain way so that when God visits them, I believe that's when He begins to work in their heart and gives them regeneration, they will then glorify God in the day of visitation. And so therefore, they will honor God even though they've seen you being slandered along the way, when God works on their heart, they'll go, wow, God was working in you. Do you understand? So you're prepping or showing, demonstrating Christ along the way, being persecuted, and you're honoring God, and it's about your behavior. Then what he does is he starts showing examples of this. And look at the examples. What's the first one in verse 13, down through 17? What's the first example of this? Yeah, and keep going. Yeah, to government. Human responsibility. Right, those guys that are put over you. And who's he talking about at this point? Peter's talking about a specific king. Yeah, who is he? It's Nero. Honor Nero. The one that would use people as human torches for his party. This is a whole different kind of concept. So you honor the king, you honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, in that circumstance, and then what's, what's going to happen? They're going to glorify God in the day of visitation. Persecution's in mind. And then he gives an example, another example, verses 18 to 20. Here's the next one. What is it? Slaves and masters. Slaves and masters. Submitting to, which goes back to your question that you were asking Tim at the rate. Employer, and you could apply it that way. If you're stealing from your employer, you're not honoring them, you're not glorifying God. So in the day of visitation, they're not going to get it. They're not going to say, hey, he was a Christian. They're going to say, what? He wasn't a Christian. He was a fake Christian. He wasn't a real believer. Right? And then he gives an example. In Christ's example, and explains that that's what Christ did, leaving us an example, right? So that we would follow that same thing, keep our role, and therefore, okay? Then chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, is the husband-wife relationship. And mostly, the emphasis is obviously on the wife. And look at the verse 1. Look at verse 1. Somebody read it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Whoa! Another example. Here we got a believing wife that's married to an unbelieving. How did that happen? Well, she might have got saved after. They got saved after. A lot of them. You got transition here. Right? And so what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to preach it to their unbelieving husband every night. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. Let me give you five biblical apologetics for how... You're supposed to live. No, it says without a word that they will be one without a word by your behavior. Why? Yes, sir. Absolutely. 11 and 12. Yes, so that... In the things which they slander you as an evildoer, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. That is the example. Chapter 3, verse 1. You got it. You nailed it. Exactly. So this is all about behavioral apologetics. The whole thing's behavioral apologetics. The whole section's about behavior apologetics. It won't matter. It won't matter at all. So people are going to see me and say, you, you know, it wouldn't matter this. So I'm not Absolutely. based on this. It's very, very important. You're, you're, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that you're never going to speak the truth. And I don't think this passage is never saying that you're not going to speak the truth. Because if you do something, you're always going to give honor and glory to God. You're going to do it in a way that's submissive humble, gentle, and they're going to, what's going to come out of their mouth when they see that you're mis being mistreated and you still humbly submit? Right. Yeah. Why'd you do that? Right. Yeah. 
why did you treat me that way? And you say, because Christ is my Lord, he bought me. He died on the cross for me. And it's a whole different way of evangelism. This is a whole different way of apologetics. The whole apologetics program is become this great philosopher that can go out there and argue with anybody. When in fact, it, this whole passage is talking about being submissive under persecution. We'll see. Absolutely. Yeah, and apply it and keep applying it. Yeah, exactly. Keep applying it. And we're going to see this as we go along. Yeah. So, so is the defense our behavior? Is that, is that what the conclusion is? No, nope, you're going to see. Oh. You, we, there is a defense. A time for defense is coming. Okay? A time for defense is coming. But let me tell you, when the defense happens, let's look at it. Look at 312. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, what in the world is this here for? He's quoting from Old Testament, and the whole idea is, is that, look, in light of your circumstances, God hears your prayers, he sees what you're doing, you're one of his children, he's watching, he hears your prayers. So call out to him, trust him in your circumstances. And if your circumstances are bad, you're being persecuted, you're being mistreated, whether it's a wife or a slave or the government is trying to kill you, the eyes of the Lord are on you towards the righteous and the ears are attending to his prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, there's going to be discipline for the believer, but even more than that, those that are rejecting God are going to face his judgment. That God is sovereign over all events that are happening. And he's bringing this about, right? So that's our context. Now look at 13. Witnessing through submission to suffering is the whole point of this section. Witnessing through submission in suffering is the whole point of the section. Verse 13 to 17 are witness through suffering for righteousness sake. Now that's so crucial. Are witness through suffering for righteousness sake is the whole point of that section. 13 to 17. Let's lead. look. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Question. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the things which you are slandered, those who revile you, Revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That is the context. That is the paragraph that it's played in. But almost always the verse is quoted, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always ready to give a defense. And it doesn't, often it doesn't even finish the verse. Fact of the matter is, is yeah, a lot of times that's left out. A lot of that. And, and most of these things aren't even defined right. So what you have, let's look at verse 13. What happens in 13? In 13 you have, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, I don't know about you, that's a question. And that comes off of 12. And 12 just says that God's eyes are on the righteous and he's against. Now, that verse implies something. It implies that God's watching over and in control of everything, right? And at that point, we should all, when we get to this question, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good? The question's kind of tricky, isn't it? Because you would think if God's watching everything that he would take care of us. Why would anything bad happen to us? Right? The implication is, is look, if you live in a way that honors God, he's most of the time going to take care of you. You're going to be okay. As a whole, average, normally, he's going to take care of you. He's watching over you. He's in control. But notice verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. In other words, look. Here's what we have. Our biggest problem is, is that we're always going around going, Oh, I'm suffering. This is so bad. This is so horrible. But and often, God's taking care of us just fine. We've just put some high expectation on God that he thinks that we should have everything beautifully. Everything should be perfect. He's saying, in effect, that, look, God's watching you, taking care of you, and most of the time you're going to be okay. 
as a whole, our lives are going to be okay. He's taking care of us. But if you do, if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now, what does that mean? How are you blessed, Jeff, if you suffer for righteousness' sake? How are you blessed? Two twelve. Yeah. If they um, slander you. Yeah. That even if they slander you, um, they may see your good deeds and that kind of. Absolutely. Okay. How is that a blessing? How is it if you're slandered for righteousness' sake? How is that a blessing? I know. You get you get to show him off. If we look at persecution as a vehicle under the hand of God's sovereignty, we see, oh, this is an opportunity. Persecution. Oh, this is an opportunity. I get another opportunity to show off Christ in my persecution, in my suffering for righteousness' sake. We don't look at persecution that way. Do you understand? It's actually favor from God when persecution comes on us. Favor from God. An opportunity to show off God's glory. That's what Peter's saying here. You're blessed when those circumstances come. It's not always, though. Most of the time, God's helping you and taking care of you. He's taking care of you. But when it happens, it's an opportunity from God. Yeah? Yeah? You were asked? Well, that, that's thinking is when the, the situation comes up, it's, it's, it's basically your attitude and, um, and your action on what you're going to do. Yeah. How and, do react? and what does he tell you? How should you react? Well, with Jesus, with look, yeah, but look, right after you are blessed, he gives two commands quoted from Old Testament Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. In other words, he gives you two commands. In light of you knowing God and knowing what Christ has done for you, don't fear. Don't be troubled. When it happens, know it's because God. And know that God's watching over you and you're, he's in control. Don't fear. Don't be troubled. Ultimately, he's saying what? Trust God. Instead, don't fear. Don't be troubled. But then he gives another command. And it's the positive side. But... Sanctify Christ as Lord. Trust God. Trust Christ. Set Him apart. Set Christ apart as Lord. He's Lord of all these circumstances. He's sovereign over all these events. This is, huh? Okay, now, is that how you do it, or is that the results of obeying that command? I think it's the results of doing that command. Yeah. How does, how does sanctifying Christ as Lord look lived out? When you're in persecution, huh? I think that's a driving motivation that's sitting behind it. Okay, if you're setting Christ apart as Lord and you're under persecution... And everything's coming on you. What's it going to look like if you're setting him apart as Lord and not fearing, not troubling? What's it going to look like? I think this is what it's going to look like. You're ready. You're always ready to give a defense of the hope that lies within you. I don't necessarily would say it's not how you do it. I think it's the res- it's what it looks like. The result of obeying the command to set apart Christ as Lord. Remember, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And then you remember in Ephesians, it gives all those participles of what it looks like. Okay? Yeah. You, 
Well, I would say that when you set him apart as Lord, you know the hope. You have confident expectation that Christ is coming, he's in control of all things, and that glory's coming. Yeah, it, it, I guess you could say that that is part of setting apart Christ as Lord. Okay? Yeah. Okay, it's all right. No, let's, let's keep... And again, you're looking... There's some uh, interpretation questions that you're having in nuance of this. You're, we're, we're arguing about little nuances of whether it's this way or that way. I think either way, you get the gist. The commands are three. What are the three commands that you're supposed to do when persecution comes? For righteousness sake. Yep. Those are your commands. Those are the things you're supposed to obey. Then all I would say is, is that always being ready to make a defense is what that looks like lived out. Well, it's not necessarily verbally, but you're ready. Yep, yep. Yep, 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 I agree. Now, here's where I think none of the guys do. What they do is, is they take that word, always ready to give a defense, always ready to make a defense. And they go through this word apologia, and you see this in here, and they go through, and Socrates and Plato uses defense and apologia, and they go over this gigantic thing, so what you need to do is no philosophy. When this is talking to the common Christian, the just a common Christian that's going to suffer persecution, Oh, so I have to have thousands of explanations of why God exists. No, that's not what he's talking about. It's not talking about philosophy at all. None. It's a submissive heart to Christ in all circumstances, including suffering for righteousness' sake. And notice when the defense comes. Nobody mentions this. You give the defense when? When do you give it? You're ready always, but you only give it when? Ask. When somebody asks you for it, why do you have this hope? It's only going to work. This is the way that God in his sovereignty does. He brings these trials and persecution into your life so they look at you and go, why are you acting like this? Why are you responding this way? And then you're ready. Oh, it's because Christ died for me. I have hope of heaven. Doesn't matter what you do to this body. It's okay. You can kill me. Doesn't matter. I got the hope of heaven. And they all go. So he's not saying go and study so you can start making. No, the passage is not showing. Take apologetics class. He's not saying any of that. In this whole section, it's not even about that. Exactly. This is the whole thing. And here's the here's the wildest thing. Who are the best apologists? Who are the best apologists? Okay? Depends on how you define it. It depends on how you define apologist. Hold on, listen, listen, listen. Let me get this point across. This is so important. Modern evangelical Christianity would say Ravi Zachariah, Strobel, McDowell, uh, all those guys are the greatest apologists. I beg to differ. It's a lady in our church I'm not going to name because it's being shown on video that has a husband that doesn't love Christ and mistreats her every day. And she still loves that guy that needs to repent and trust in Christ. That's the greatest apologist. That's the greatest apologist. I'm sorry I'm spitting, but you... That's it! Ah, this is it, guys. This is what it's about. It's the truth. It's the truth. So based on, based on uh, what, we, based on what you're teaching, I understand that myself, for example, when you are the... You get saved, you're on a job, and then you get demoted, you get kicked down, you get pushed down... You get, uh, you got to clean the floors while your captain looking over you and treating you like you're dirt. And every day, all this stuff going on, it was wild, you know, and all this was happening, just crazy. 
But yet, in my mind, I didn't even see it all. All I knew is that God saved me. All I cared about was being saved. So when they were when they demoted me, when they put me, when they took a firefighter and put him above me, and I was a driver, and when they put me back to a firefighter, when they talked about firing me, when they told they laughed in my face, when they did all this stuff I was going through, you know, I had my Bible. And all I would do is after five o'clock, I'd take my Bible and I go read. And I didn't know how to handle a lot of the things, but I did not fight. I did not do anything. I did not, you know, and all that. But I said, Lord, this is what you said in your word. You saved me. I know something has happened in my life. And so I went on. But in the end, several guys got saved. Some of the guys who did that to me got fired, demoted. I never even raised my voice at anybody. But I never realized I was apologize. I wouldn't even think about nothing like that. All I cared about, I was saved. That's all that mattered to me. And so from that perspective, what we're seeing now, you know, our behavior, and it gave me an opportunity to be a witness to some of the guys at work. Because one guy would come back and start talking to me, and he'd see me read my Bible, and I would start sharing the gospel with him, you know, and everything. But that persecution is what led to that, though. Amen. You know. Amen. So. Guys, I'm totally convinced that we respond inappropriately to mistreatment. And that destroys opportunities for the gospel. Instead of looking at them as opportunities like you did, or we got to think that way, that when we're mistreated, we're all screaming, my rights. Yeah. No. Yeah, we can't scream, my rights. We should be screaming what? Opportunity. Christ is Lord. When we say that... When we say that, people say, you're the opposite of the way the world thinks. You are opposite. None of us should be screaming, give me equal rights. No, no. Christ bought me. I'm saved. That's enough. He's Lord. And he's Lord over you, even in your mistreatment of me. And when we get this, our life's totally different. It's totally different. And everybody goes, wow. God is good. When they're saved. And before that, they think we're just absolutely nuts. And the sad part, I shared it with a pastor, Pastor Mike, one time, because he was going through the same thing. You know, his response was, oh, we don't have to take this anymore. And my heart dropped. And after he said that, Brad, I was worried. I didn't know what else to say. I just said, God, how do you respond? So I left, and but my heart dropped. Y'all listen, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Verse 15, doesn't a lot of people um, really take that word defense as an, as, an, as an attacking? Yeah, and again, he did it. He said, even my professor, right, an explanation. And it's a, it's a, a, ultimately it's a defense of everyone who asks for you to give an account of the hope. And, and ultimately that means, look, if you give a defense and they don't know that you have hope, and that you, you're given a defense, and it's really about your rights, you're argumentative then. You've missed the whole point. You've got everything wrong. In other words, somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you're a, you're a Christian, you're a weird Christian fanatic, aren't you? You say, I just, I, just want, I just want to serve God. I want to obey Him. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. He saved me. Paul says that at the end, yeah. Why do you strike me? Yeah. So he did confront him with the truth. Sure. So I think we can, we can balance our witness and our behavior sure. with. Sometimes we have to confront evil. Sometimes there's a question that you can ask. But, you know, all I would say to that, Brad, and I would agree with you, I would just say that, and this is what I told the college students the other day, is just that it's ultimately all about a relationship with God. And what I mean by that is, is you better be walking with the Spirit. You know what I mean? Because there's going to be times where I, I can speak up and said, is it okay to, to, to strike a Roman citizen? Paul did that. Is it, is it all right to strike? But then there's another time where he took it. And he already knew 
they were he was a Roman citizen. Yeah, that's just a poor treatment of the, the, the and and look, I'm not again, I'm not making a whole treatise yeah. on apologetics. Right. I'm making a defense I'm a defense. I'm making an explanation of the very verse that's used out of context for everybody to give full rampant to what apologetics is. And I just don't think the verse gives, gives that weight. Okay? There's plenty of other places we're going to talk about it as we go along. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, they're confronted by it. When you work harder than the next guy next to you, they hate you. They hate it. Even having more than even having kids, people hate it when they see like a lot of kids. That we're so counterculture. It's not even funny. Yeah, they think you're whacked out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what's wrong with you? You got four. Hey. All right, some observations real quick. Get these. Our defense is often more about what we do and who we are than what we say. I'm not saying always all cases, but often, often, often is what I said. Our defense is given when we are asked by those who are persecuting us to do what is for doing what is right. That's, again, that, I think that word asks is there for a reason. It implies that they see something different in you before they even ask. Third, our defense is partnered with a heart trusting in the sovereign Lord who blesses us through difficult circumstances. Sanctifying Christ as the Lord. Our defense is not about winning an argument. At least in this passage, it's not talking anything about winning an argument. Matter of fact, you might take a beating. But we must get well, the last word in edgewise. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with you on this one, Mike. No. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Fifth, the goal of our defense is the conversion of the one persecuting us, but it's ultimately up to God. We see the one beating us, we see the one mistreating us, and we say, oh, here's an opportunity for God to visit them and therefore them glorify God. For his work in me. Yeah. I will go one step forward on the, on the fourth. Uh, you know, um, not, not only our defense is not about winning an argument, but also when we, when we confront someone with the gospel, it's not to win an argument. Either. Right. It's always to you know, go through the Just to present the truth. Now, just so you know, guys, this is not the whole class. I just gave you the first thing to try to explain this, okay? Because y'all are going to see as we go along. I'm going to say... Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. And you're like, what? That sounds very confrontational. There is a time for that, too. We're going to talk about that. All right, so let's define apologetics. Apologetics is not one. Apologetics is not a quarrel. It's not a quarrel. Look at 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy. Let's see if I get these out of context. If I do, y'all smack me. Okay? Politely, gently, with reverence, please. Reverence. 2 Timothy 2. Let's start in verse 24. This is, this is, by the way, these are my life verses here, 24 to 26. They are the ones that I am just constantly rebuking my soul with. Uh, let's start back in 20. It's good. Now in a large house there are not only gold silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they, pro they produce quarrels. In other words, sometimes people come up to me and they say things like, did you see so-and-so and what he said? I'm like, come on. I think we need to be careful of going into speculations and all these things. And, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. But notice, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, 
able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So ultimately, we are supposed to correct. We're supposed to do it with gentleness. We're supposed to do it. Uh, we're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be patient when wronged. Again, right there. You see it? It happens again. It's the idea that you, you aren't supposed to argue even when you're treated wrong. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't be argumentative. Even when you're being wrong. You're supposed to be patient, gentle, kind, yet correct with gentleness. Okay, And that's that balance that, we, that Brad brought up. Not quarrel. Apologetics is not an argument based on human wisdom. Look over at 1 Corinthians. Oh, this is so crucial. These, these, this whole section of 1 Corinthians is crucial. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, all the way down through 2, 5. Is, it really keeps on going down through 13. But 2, 1 to 5. Somebody read that, 2, 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. So apologetics is not an argument based on human words of wisdom. In fact, where is Corinth? Anybody know where Corinth is? What modern day country is it in? Nope. It's in Greece. What, what happened in Greece? The Greek philosophers. The Greek philosophers. So this would be, this is just a little further north of Athens. That people would know everybody. So what you have here is he's saying, look, I didn't come as a philosopher. <laughs> I didn't come with these great words. As a matter of fact, I came in weakness. Remember, when Paul was in Corinth, God gives him a message and says, there's many of my people here in this city. Don't fear. But Paul, being in that city by himself, because everybody had gone up north to work on some of the people that he had been run away from, he's by himself. That means he's owning that he was, look, it was a little scary. I was in your city with nobody. I was by myself. It was a little intimidating. A bunch of pagans. This was very difficult. I'm by myself. But I stood on truth. I didn't stand on human wisdom. I didn't try to give this great human wisdom logical argumentation. All I did was preach Christ and Him crucified. And in light of the context, Christ and Him crucified is what? For the Christian, it's the power of God. For the world, it's foolishness. Look at 118. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is apologetics? It's not an argument based on philosophy and these things. It's the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. Yes. We are simpletons. <laughs> Take out the four views book or 